Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us in studio again, we have our TV critic, Sonia Soraya. Hey. Uh, Sonia, we brought you in here because it is kind of a quiet time for movies out there. There's like a couple things of interest. There's just the Avengers looming in the horizon. But it's a really busy time for television. There's so much stuff premiering in the next couple weeks, uh, partly because of uh, Emmy qualification, which we can get into. Uh, so basically, I, see, I needed help like shoveling through the pile of prestige shows that are debuting. I, I don't know if as a person who has to watch all of these, uh, if you feel like you're just buried under a giant pile right now. Uh, buried, which sounds like Barry, a sitcom on HBO. Um, yeah, I, I do a little bit, but I think also, as as we'll talk about, there's like a cream of the crop that like becomes really apparent. As in, there's a whole lot of stuff out there, but only a handful of things you actually need to pay attention to? Yeah, kind of. Although things are a little different this year because of the way HBO has changed its strategy. There's just like so many more HBO shows in contention for the Emmys this year than there typically are. But yeah, I feel like it makes it possible to focus on stuff, um, but it comes at the expense of everything else. <laughs> so what are you focusing on? You brought up Barry. Is that the is that top of mind for you right now? I Yeah, I like love Barry. <laughs> I watched the second season, the first three episodes of the second season, and I felt like really on the hook for it. Um, Killing Eve obviously like was excited for season two, and then I saw the first two episodes and it like, blew me away. And uh, Fosse Verdon on FX, the uh, Bob Fosse miniseries. The television event of the century? That's basically the television event of the century. It's so much fun. It's so much fun to like have dancing, like sexy musical theater dancing. Um, there's a, it feels like there's a lot of fun stuff this year to talk about. Richard and Joanna, you guys have been over at still watching like very, very deep in Game of Thrones world. So when new stuff comes out that isn't about like killing and fur pelts, like does it feel like a relief? Well, I mean, Fosse Verdant is kind of about killing and fur pelts, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, no, definitely. You know, it's fun to just kind of pick your head up. And, you know, I've also been so, you know, in movie land all Oscar season and then kind of the residual after. Um, So, yeah, it's nice to kind of tuck into something that's, you know, many hours long and really interesting. I agree with Sonia that Barry is great. Um, uh, I'm really liking Fosse Verdant and, uh, you know, Veep is as good as ever. So there's, you know, there's, there's exciting stuff. For me, I'm not necessarily writing about everything, but um, as a just casual viewer, it's um, it's a good time to be a, a TV watcher. Joanna, what are you excited about that isn't Thrones related? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought The Return of Veep was really, really good. And I did this interview with Dave Mandela at, at TCA, the showrunner of Veep, and he was talking to me a lot about how the luxury they have of doing this political comedy is the fact that in their reality, Trump doesn't exist. <laughs> and so it's like a he called it a Trump-free zone. And I was just like, yes. And that's a huge relief because like, as much as you think we're, you know, occupied with talking about Game of Thrones. I feel like we've all been like hooked on the Trump show for two years with 
like a massive hangover. And um, the fact that Veep comes along after a, a longish absence because of Julia Louis-Dreyfus's health. And um, we kind of forgot what political comedy was without like the Trump shadow over it. And of course the Trump shadow is there. And of course it is reacting in some ways to the Trump administration, but it's nice, you know, it's nice not to be on that like SNL, uh, let's just regurgitate what Trump is saying sort of uh, cycle and, and to have something a little more broader and, and that will be more resonant once this is all over, if that makes sense. Hmm. So this is one of the things that like, I feel like I got off of Veep a little bit because of the whole Trump factor of it. Like, I don't know if I wanted to watch political stuff at all in like my precious leisure time. Like, I mean, Veep has always been kind of like biting in addition to being funny. Like, how's that balance working these days, especially with their last season coming up? Like, I wondered if they would suddenly start getting sentimental as they wrap up these characters. They are not getting sentimental as they wrap up these characters. (laughs) (laughs) I think that last season did end on like a surprisingly emotional note uh, for the Selena character because she had, you know, she makes this awful in everyone's uh, mind decision to run for president again and had to sort of put aside the actually kind of nice life that she had built for herself outside of of office. And the idea was like she couldn't let herself have this nice thing because she's just is who she is and she's a political creature and she needs to be in the mix of it. And sort of, so what you're watching her do now is this slow motion, bad life decision. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's softened, but there is that sort of emotional resonance that hangs over it more than just some of the antics that we've seen in season past. And I think also, you know, aside from Trump, what we can kind of look at it now as like, it's some weird distorted reflection of the, democratic primary scramble that's happening right now this is what i was just thinking and i hope to hell that that's not actually what's happening behind the scenes with all these people who are kind of relying on to rescue the world um but uh it is still grimly funny to just watch everyone be so petty and because the show i I mentioned this i reviewed the the, the first three episodes of of the new season the show has really never been about policy you know it's not it's not a show that's kind of mocking grander political ideals it's much more petty and small than that and so i think because of that you can yeah you can kind of infer stuff that you know connections to the real world but you can also just like wade into something that i i think i called like it's kind of like a weird meta competency porn it's not like watching people good at their jobs it's watching people who are really good at playing people who are terrible at their jobs um and there's just something really satisfying about the cast just clicking so well i believe we'll have an interview with anna klumsky coming up uh, soon on this podcast, by the way. Mm, good tease. Um, yeah. And the, the, the other thing about the, that Dave Mandel pointed out and is true is like when that show started, it was so sort of wickedly delicious for us. Cause we're like, Ooh, this backstage glimpse. Oh, we can't believe people actually say this stuff. They behave so badly. This is amazing. <laughs> um, and he's like the backstage though now is gone in American politics, right? We see the backstage all the time. We mm. see it tweeted out like every day. So that, that, same degree of like, oh, I can't believe people are actually this awful is like not in our mindset anymore. And so there has to be something else. And I think there is. I think there's plenty else there. I think that the joy I get from Veep is that they're all terrible people, but what they do 
which is like bad for the America, like arguably, but it seems all really bad for America. But like they don't seem happy by it. Like they are actively making themselves miserable. Like sort of like you were saying, <laughs> Joanna, like Selena leaves this life that is nice. Like she has a grandchild that she like refuses to appreciate like or acknowledge or anything. Like it's it's just a prop. It's all it all, it all serves this like political theater that is like vicious and terrible. So that like is comforting to me. I like to think about uh, I like to think about Donald Trump being miserable. So. <laughs> You're not the only one. So, yeah. <laughs> this year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. Um, the other, so uh, talking about Barry, which also is the half hour comedy airing on HBO right now, I kind of had the opposite concern about its second season as Veep, where like, it felt like the end of season one of Barry, which I loved, like really got dark. Like it got darker and darker as the season went on and kind of watching this character like grapple with his demons. And I was curious about how it would spring back into comedy potentially at the beginning of this season. Um, I mean, they still have Henry Winkler, so it can't be so bad, but anyway, how, how do they pull that off? I think that it's partly due to, like, Barry's own complete denial about everything that, like, they just, like, the gulf between the way he wants things to be and the way things actually are is so wide that it is, I mean, it is very funny. Like, the whole first episode, their acting class is supposed to put on, oh, my God, the front page, uh, that comedy, the front page. And so for the whole episode, Barry, who was who was killed, a per, his his person at the end of the second of the first season killed is, his acting teacher's girlfriend who is the police detective who's investigating okay so he's literally killed this person but is like in this old-timey like 40s like newspaper outfit with like a press thing in his fedora and is like practicing these like ridiculous hokey lines um it, it really worked for me i was like this is this is delusion this is delusional yeah it's a dark show for sure but i think that what the first season does fascinatingly and the second season continues on is as the first season goes, you, the show kind of tells you, oh, did you think that he was like the hero of the story? Like he's a terrible person <laughs> uh, and probably a sociopath. Um, and so the second season kind of like reminds you of that. And then everyone's in this kind of depression slash kind of panic. And um, and it's really more the whole circumstances of the show, even though the characters within it are taking it very seriously. 
so it's a really tricky line to walk and you know it's one i think that weeds tried to do and failed a lot um and succeeded others other times and there's some quirky stuff in barry that i think works maybe only three quarters of the time but um it's still a fascinating show and bill Hader's great anthony kerrigan is great as a kind of bizarre gangster um steven root is excellent as barry's sort of former hitman boss um, and Winkler obviously is wonderful. I mean, everyone's good. It's just, it's just like a really compelling, um, and dark show. I don't know how many seasons this kind of tension can be sustained for, but for now it's, it's the second season is surprisingly working well. Uh, Sarah Goldberg, who plays Sally, who is Barry's girlfriend, has a lot more to do in this season. And Oh, uh, good. I, that was a problem I had with the first one. Yeah, she's, I mean, well, the the whole joke of the first season is that she's so self-obsessed that she can't pick up on all the red flags around this person. And, like, that kind of keeps escalating for part of season two. But then you begin to, like, you just begin to explore her character more and sort of realize Again, the delusion, but this time the delusion of someone who, like, leaves their whole life behind them to go to Hollywood and pursue this acting career and, like, the kind of narcissism that kind of, that fuels that, but also, like, where that might come from. Um, I, I really thought, like, just in one episode and the third episode, you, I just saw her change so much. And it was like, oh, this there's so much more to this performance than I had originally anticipated. So it's kind of fun to see those dimensions, too. Uh, Richard, you talked about uh, not knowing how far Barry could go with the premise that it has, and I feel like that was a something brought up a lot about Killing Eve, which had its like blockbuster first season last year. And I think many people, there's been pieces written about it, and then just generally in Twitter, like maybe it should have just been one season. Uh, but it's back, and I'm really excited to see what uh, everyone is wearing. But I, I'm curious <laughs> if the premise manages to sustain itself for an entire second season of this. Who's seen it? Tony's seen it. I have seen it, yeah. Well, I actually kind of made a, a choice that I've made with some other shows. Is I'm not going to watch it because I think the first Whoa. season for me was so perfect that I don't, I don't. It's like I'm not going to watch a second season of Fleabag. Um, and it's not that I'm just abandoning British shows about women. I promise. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> From Phoebe Waller Bridge. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back on the Fleabag thing. We'll get to that more. We'll get to Fleabag. Like, but um, and I, I probably I'm, will get to them at some point. But I just for right now, I'm just sort of like still savoring the first seasons and. Um, I've had many shows kind of sour in my in my estimation of them in the, in the second season. So I'm, I'm sort of experimenting and seeing can my love of a first season be sustained even while people are watching more and more new episodes. And I don't know. So far, it's okay. But uh, maybe I'll come to <laughs> But it, it hasn't premiered yet. <laughs> I'll say this. So I've seen both. Like, I've seen a few episodes of the new season of Killing Eve. And um, I, I will I will just say this, that, like, I, I don't I don't dislike it. I like it. I do agree with the takes that like, okay, the first season had this element of surprise or like, you know, we didn't we had never seen Jodie Comer do thing the what she does in this show. We had seen Sandra Oh be great and other things, obviously. Um, you know, so I think I think it has a high, high bar to clear in order to like match what uh, the first season did for us. And I'm not sure it quite clears that. Um, with Fleabag, which we'll get to, I think it sails right over that bar and into like the stratosphere. So I think I think you're right to be cautious, Richard. And I am curious what, what Sonia thinks of Killing Eve season two. I mean, I, so I only saw, you know, they only sent out two episodes. And I really, like in this case, I really wish I could have seen more because it's so hard. I mean, the first two episodes of Killing Eve, the first season, weren't a very good indication, I think, of what that season was going to be. But um, I <laughs> was not sure if it was going to pull off. I mean, I feel skeptical about season twos, uh, especially ones that like feel rushed to capitalize on some buzz. 
but I really liked where it went. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think if I can describe it in any way. Basically, th there were a couple of set pieces that like, uh, like a whole, um, one of the ways that Villanelle tries to uh, survive after, like there's multiple ways, like after after what happens in the finale, like so Sandra O oh, like stabs her, Eve stabs her, right? And then she like staggers out. And like you see her surviving and the way she survives is just so, to me, it was so illustrative and so, um, it, it really capitalized on Villanelle's whole thing of being like the charming feminine uh, teenage girlish type, but then also like being really deadly on the other side. And I just, I, it was really fun to see her in the position of being pers like being desperate, being helpless. Um, as even when she was in the prison, Villanelle was really scary the whole time. But this really feels like she's she's been knocked out of her comfort zone. Um, and then Sandra Oh, uh, as Eve, is doing this whole like guilt thing because she feels like she can't talk about what she did with Villanelle. She wasn't supposed to go to Paris in the first place. And then like her doing that like really messes her up. I mean, at least at first. And I, I just liked seeing Sandra Oh do that. So I feel optimistic, but I definitely, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. You know what? So Fleabag doesn't premiere until May, but Joanna, you brought it up as something that uh, sails the bar uh, for the uh, first season, the second season. So uh, we'll talk about Fleabag more later when it's closer to premiering, but uh, give us a tease about Fleabag. Well, I mean, I think it's it's worth talking about the fact that Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who also wrote and co-created, adapted Killing Eve, the first season at least. She's not the writer on the second season. That I think she doesn't approach these things without that heavy skepticism that Richard talks about because she has said publicly and loudly that this second season of Fleabag is her putting this character to bed forever. Hmm. That she, you know, this is a character that she did on stage before, you know, she did any TV. This is a character that she has like performed at like the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And then um, I believe she's what, she's currently doing it in New York or is about to or just finished doing it. Anyway, she's doing a little run of the original Fleabag show on the stage uh, in New York. And so she's like, she's done it. And she's like, okay, I, I have this idea for how to like put Fleabag to bed and then I'm done with that. This is the thing that launched my career and then I want to move on and do something else. And I think that intentionality is really, really clear in the second season, which just sort of takes what's so great about the first season and then breaks it in a way that is really uh, emotionally true to the character and I will be as vague as possible. And the other thing that it benefits from, and we'll talk about about this more when we get closer to when it actually airs, um, is Andrew Scott is brought in as sort of, like there's there's a lot of great people in, in the second season. Fiona Shaw from Killing Eve in the second season. Kristen Scott Thomas is in the second season, blah, blah. But... Um, but Andrew Scott is brought in, uh, you know, that people might know as Mori Moriarty from the Sherlock, uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, is brought in to be this, like, foil to her. And he's just, like, a live wire. He's perfect. And so it's just, it's a short season. I think it's probably, what, six episodes? Maybe eight? Um, and I think it is just, like, a very intentional, planned goodbye. And and I feel like we need more of that just sort of like intentional contained storytelling in the era of peak TV when we're just constantly like inundated by things that outstay their welcome. Are, are uh, you saying that a certain series that's airing its final season soon may uh, not have planned things so intentionally? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I mean, um, uh, well, that that is just like trying desperately to wrap up a saga that is so long in the making. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's a different kind of 
Sure, yeah, Game, you, Game you, of Thrones you, is much more unwieldy than Fleabag. Yeah, you couldn't have wrapped that up in season five, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, um, I think they're doing, I think, in fact, their attempts to get it done uh, is, you know, and Richard and I have talked about this on the Still Watching Game of Thrones Rewatch podcast that we're doing, their attempts to get it done in any reasonable timeline uh, is what has prompted some of the, like, I don't know, broader strokes, strokes storytelling that they're doing in the later seasons of Game of Thrones. Sonia, I wanted to go back. You mentioned something about like a new strategy that HBO is employing and they have more shows in the running. Can you can you kind of unpack that just a little bit or is there something to unpack there? Um, I think that the only thing to unpack there is that it seems as if HBO has ramped up its distribution schedule. I'm saying that as without really based on the fact that, you know, they changed ownership. It's now run by AT&T. They have a new um the new head and Bob Greenblatt, um, based on the, the information that came out of uh, whatever that strategy shift was, there was this like there was this like rumor, you know, early in the year that HBO was going to be more like Netflix, and I don't know if that's exactly true, but it does seem it does seem it does seem true that there are so many HBO shows that are debuting just this spring alone, on top of what was already in contention that you could fill out like every Emmy category, nearly every Emmy category with just really good HBO contenders that are all going to be competing against each other. And I, I just think that there's something interesting and a little a little overwhelming about it because just because it's like just because as someone who likes all of these shows, having them all stacked on top of each other makes it hard to pick out one or two to to be like, you know, these are the winners, these are the ones that we should focus on when it feels like a lot of really good things are going to be um, in contention. So, like, for example, like, you know, my my brilliant friend, which was the Elena Ferrante um, adaptation, I think would have been like a more serious contender for awards in a different year. Um, but I forgot that it happened. Literally has like, fall- yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's a, they built that entire town on a soundstage. Like there's, it's crazy how much they did. It was a, it was a foreign language show. I mean, completely cast in Naples. They spent so much uh, time and money on it. And it's just one of like 15 to 20 shows that is, <laughs> that HBO is putting out. Uh, like, you know, Leaving Never- Neverland, which is like the documentary side of things, um, is also in contention. I mean, it's, it's, sort of well I mean like sharp objects is eligible for this Emmy round which is you know from last summer insane it's it insane. Feels insane yeah <laughs> it's a I mean so like another one that's coming out soon so I mean of course there's Game of Thrones there's Succession which was this summer that's also in contention sharp objects Veep Barry D- didn't Silicon Valley happen this year too um and then I feel like there's so many uh documentary stuff that is even a little bit outside of my radar, but there was Elizabeth Holmes uh, and Theranos and Leaving Neverland about Michael Jackson, Case Against Adnan Syed, like these are sort of, you know, major contenders. Um, And then there's even more things that are still coming out. So not just Game of Thrones, but also I guess like Insecure, I'm expecting to come out fairly soon. And um, Gentleman Jack, which is... uh, Oh, yeah. What uh, is that? With Sally Wainwright. (laughs) Yeah, Sally Wainwright. So this is like a Sally Wainwright who did Happy Valley. This is one of her passion projects uh, that she's been working on apparently for like a decade. And it's like a period piece about lesbians, which is amazing. (laughs) Um, It's so my jam. And it's based on a true true figure. Which is so cool. I mean, and on top of... 
high maintenance, which I know is like me and Richard both love that show. Like how are all of these shows can flesh out an entire like the half hour? I'm like, that could all be HBO shows. And I would have a really hard time deciding which one. Um, Wait, the Deadwood movie is also still coming with an eligibility? Actually, I think it is. I think it is. I'm just looking out. at Gold Derby it's and like May. looking at the HBO stuff. Yeah. That is bananas. So it's, in, it's bananas. It's bananas how much is coming out in just a few months and how much is all going to be in contention at the same time. And I mean, they exactly what Sonia is saying. They they have been plain spoken. The the new regime at HBO has said like, okay, it's it's we've been known for quality all these years. Now we're going to be known for quantity as well. <laughs> and I think there's this fear that like you know the HBO if HBO puts its logo on something, right? You're like, okay, I know what that means. That means a certain level of prestige, whatever. Versus Netflix is throwing anything at the wall to see what sticks. Like the Netflix logo on something means nothing to me because it could be <laughs> Richard's favorite show, Fuller House, or it could be you know. <laughs> Russian doll you don't know what you're gonna get with HBO there was like this certain like sheen of like you know prestige, prestige to it right. that I that I think they're just less concerned with because they're chasing the Netflix model and I think you've heard this from people who both love HBO or have worked at HBO this is that they're really worried not even just what it looks like now which as Sonia outlined is like already bananas but what it's going to look like because like bear in mind that HBO just really puts almost a hundred percent of their original program is just on Sunday nights, right? Like occasionally, <laughs> occasionally part two will be on Monday, but that's, that's been HBO is like, we do something on Sunday. It's going to be great. It's why you work on Sundays. Joanna. Yeah. And it's why I haven't had a Sunday off in like five years. You know what I mean? And so like, so, but now they're like, what if we do programming on other nights? And I, I think all of us, you know, Sonia may be included because she watches, she diligently watches more television than all of us, like are crying in anticipation of <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep up with like everything that they have planned. They're not alone in this sort of like chase the Netflix model of flood the market. But I just, because every, every network, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my understanding. HBO needs, as as we move increasingly to like these streamer options for how we watch things, HBO increasingly needs to make you feel like HBO Go, the app HBO Go, is essential to mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And if you can only pick one, it has to be HBO Go. And they were they felt assured of that for the last however many years because they had Game of Thrones. Even even like even if Game of Thrones was gone a year, you like maybe didn't drop your HBO subscription because Game of Thrones is coming back and this is the biggest show in the world. But that is about to end and you can talk to me all day long about spin-offs, but like HBO is sweating and worried about their primacy without Game of Thrones. And so the answer seems to be um Flood the more, Zone. More stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what feels good right now at least with this, with regards to this strategy, is that the, the shows all still feel good. Like all of these things are coming out on top of each other, but they still feel. I still feel good about like Barry's great, Veep's great, brilliant. My brilliant friend is great. Succession, Sharp Objects, all like high quality. But I don't know if they can continue that with the pace being so elevated, which I think is like their big challenge right now. 
I'm really struck by the difference between uh, Oscar strategies and Emmy strategies, where like HBO, clearly they want to be Netflix, they want to compete on volume, but they care about Emmys. Like they need the prestige to keep all of this going. And the idea of like, you know, if you were focused features and you were just throwing a hundred things at the wall to hope one of them would stick for an Oscar, that would never work. But the way I think Netflix has really changed this formula of TV where like you have to prove that you're gigantic, like Joanna was saying, you have to have your app be on there. And then Hopefully you can also spend enough money to get something in there that works prestige-wise. But I, I wonder how sustainable that is. Like Netflix has endless VC money. I don't know that HBO does. They have AT&T, I guess. But, you know, they're not going to just spend forever on the Deadwood movie. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys noticed that when you watch anything on like a streaming service, if there's ads, so many of the ads are for other things to watch. <laughs> I don't know if this is happening to other people. Like other things to watch on that service? Or on different services. Like if I watch like, like if I'm watching something on uh, Comedy Central's app, um, I'll get advertisements for like Hulu shows or NBC, sometimes NBC shows or I mean, or, or other things on on Comedy Central. Yeah, that's true, too. Or HBO. I get advertised a lot of like they're like, oh, you're in this niche. Like, here's more, which I think speaks, Joanna, to a sort of what you're saying, this like flooding the zone thing where it's like, oh, like subscribe to this. Like it has this thing that you like uh, just reminding you, just reminding you we exist. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You need us. You don't remember that you need us. Actually, the worst version of this, and and um, I don't know if this happens. I, I don't, maybe it's just like my cable provider Xfinity does this. I don't know. But um, if you're catching up on a show that you've fallen behind on and you're watching old episodes and then they give you like an ad for an episode that's like way down the line, you're like, wait, why are you showing me? No, come like on, the spoilers. Right. Right. Yeah, the spoilers. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, I wanted to talk about one other show that is not on HBO or Netflix, and maybe we can talk about uh, what that means. Uh, FX is coming out with uh, their big Fosse Verdon miniseries. Uh, we've talked about FX a lot in the past for kind of its historical uh, things with uh, People vs. J.J. Simpson and the American Crime Story last year. Those are all under the Ryan Murphy umbrella. Ryan Murphy has gone over to Netflix at this point. Um, the existence of Fosse Verdon say anything about FX's strategy other than that they want to stick with this? Like, is this their kind of big post-Ryan Murphy, we don't need him, we can have something splashy on our own? Uh, statement yeah I think I think it's part of that the interesting thing about watching the show is that like you know as a you know theater major theater nerd kid I I'm like totally enwrapped even though the, the show is actually mostly about making movies but you know it's all these kind of theater figures in it and I think it's you know it's really compelling it's very well acted but I do have a question and maybe you agree with me Sonia maybe you don't um as to like who it's really for beyond that pretty narrow audience, you know, like FX weirdly has built up an audience that's sort of like, like Sons of Anarchy and, and, uh, you know, other kind of tough gritty shows, but also they have American Horror Story and Pose and um, the assassination of Johnny Versace. So there's a sort of, I don't know, queer audience maybe involved. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think Fosse Verdon definitely obviously falls on that side of things. But I'm just curious, like, how big the audience for it is actually going to be, um, given that it doesn't have the Ryan Murphy imprimatur on it um, and yet is sort of in the same vein as, as some of his past projects for the network. Yeah, I mean, it does sort of seem to me like they're hoping that they can keep whatever audience came to FX for Ryan Murphy. Because to my mind, FX was like a like a bro kind of network, you know, for like a super long time with like, you know, Justified and Archer, uh, Sons of Anarchy and like now Mayans, as you said. And like a lot, like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like started on FX, like things like that. 
But then, like, they definitely began to change, you know, the the Americans, which was, uh, like, super critically lauded and eventually got recognized by the Emmys, was, like, never really had audience numbers that paid off, but people, like, critics liked it. And so they kind of held on to it. And then while that was happening, you know, Ryan Murphy was establishing this empire, um, which was like, I think a lot of it did bring like a queer audience. So I, it sort of seems to me like Fosse Verdon is like, do do we still do? Are we a player in this space? Like, can we still do it? And what I what I like about that is that at least they're giving us a really good show to work with. <laughs> um, and and maybe that that will that will pay off for them. But it does seem a little bit like a gamble, um, especially because it is so insidery. Um, I was talking to Hillary uh, Busis, my editor, about Fosse Verdon, and there are a lot of references that I like didn't get when I was watching it um, because I'm not, you know, I'm not a theater uh, nerd, theater major. But I still really enjoyed it because it was performances and dancing, and I could follow the plot well enough. And and I felt like I was learning something about that that era on Broadway, so that was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, I wonder I wonder how how many more Easter eggs I'm going to miss <laughs> as I keep going. What I've seen so far is that it feels like a an interesting uh, writing of the record for Gwen Verdon, uh, who's Michelle Williams' character, because like Bob Fosse, like you know, probably if you don't know much about theater, you still know who you have a vague idea of who Bob Fosse is and you can like do a jazz hand and be like, I understand Bob Fosse. Um, with Gwen Verdon, I think you have to go like a couple layers down into knowing about musicals and musical theater. Uh, you know, if you've seen the film version of damn Yankees, um, she was considered, I think like, you know, a stage star, but as, as the show quickly gets into was maybe not considered like photogenic enough to be a movie star. And the, the other thing that the, that the show quickly gets into, so I don't think this is a spoiler is just sort of like how much what Bob Fosse did for work was a collaboration between himself and Gwen Verdon and how much her legacy just got lost. Mm. Um, and, and, and like his own sort of, petty insecure masculinity around the attention that she received at the time. And I think that's like, a, it, it reminds me a lot of the people versus OJ and sort of us looking at Marsha Clark again uh, in a different way. Obviously like Gwen Verdon was never like vilified the way that Marsha Clark was, but like it's a similar sort of correcting of the record, uh, which I, which I appreciate in, in all the other um, musical, you know, because I, you know, Katie and I have been really excited for this show because we're <laughs> we're a big musicals fan, and I've been like sending Katie uh, YouTube clips of Fosse stuff, and she's you've like, "I help- already watched that one." You've been helping so. me in my education, though. I was one of the people who like has like loved musicals my whole life. I didn't know who Gwen Vernon was. Like, I didn't have that level of research, and it, like you're saying, it's really easy to overlook her legacy in this stuff. Yeah, yeah, but um, I'm excited for it. Was so funny because before the show was announced, I spent a couple days with friends like a couple years ago, just going down these various YouTube like wormholes of Bob Fosse stuff. And you can do that yourself at home, listener, if you don't know who Bob Fosse is. YouTube um, is an amazing resource for this stuff. 
I mean, you can watch whole movies, obviously, but like if you don't want to, just want to watch like some of his choices choreography and then go f- launch from there and watch like uh, what Beyonce took from Bob Fosse, what Michael Jackson took from Bob Fosse, and like how much, like, and it's not just like inspired by its direct moves lifts from um, and how much that has impacted like what we think of um, as dance throughout the years. It's not just like musical theater dance, it's like our culture of dance is so much Fosse in, in many, many ways. And the Paula Abdul music video, Cold Hearted Snake, which is obviously a classic. So, you know, um, <laughs> check out the Fosse legacy. <laughs> Be careful because watching Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon videos on YouTube, that's just a gateway to Jordan Peterson and getting red-pilled, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> It's a slippery slope. Um, But yeah, something I really appreciate about the show is that while it does absolutely, you know, um, give more context for, you know, the the brilliant mind that was Gwen Verdon, um, it doesn't make Fosse this kind of horrible anti-hero, just like nightmare to watch. There are moments where you just want to like push him down a flight of stairs because he's just so (laughs) annoying. But like he, but I think it's, it's both the writing and Sam Rockwell's performance. There is at the very least like some... The, the, the roundedness of a, of a real human there, you know, and I appreciate that because I think a lot of times it can be, you know, I, I don't tend to like biopics about troubled creative men because I think a lot of the time you're just watching a real asshole for two hours. Um, and this, there are moments where that, that's, that could be, that is true, but I think that there is a, it's a little more textured than that, which I really appreciate. And I also think, you know, I kind of tweeted about it last night. Actually, I was like, I kind of wish the show was just called Verdon um, because Michelle Williams is so good in the role um, and it's kind of a weird side cousin to what she was doing in All the Money in the World but I think it works better here um, well, in terms of what just the, the performance like because the characters don't seem to have anything in common the characters have nothing in common it's just an affectation of a kind of mid-century kind of voice mm. uh, and bearing and a sort of you know um, I mean Verdon's life was not you know patrician from the from the outset certainly but like you know that that kind of maybe slightly affected um, wealthy bearing, um, and but it's it's subtle though. It's but it's it's really well done, um, and you know, and Rockwell is good too. But I think I've seen that character before. I've seen a performance like that before. Whereas Williams is doing something uh, that feels new to me. For what it's worth, something interesting about the production too is that Nicole Fossey, who uh, Bob Fossey and Gwen Vernon's daughter, um, who's a character as a child, was a creative consultant on the show. Um, she's like doing a little bit of press for them too. So there is a, as you were saying, Richard, like Bob Fosse uh, makes mistakes, uh, but he's not this like monstrous figure either. I think there's a lot of love for both, uh, for both people and for the relationship they had with each other, this really fruitful collaboration. Um, I, and you can, I think you can see a lot of the, um, the affection there too. One last uh, thing that I want to say about Michelle Williams' performance, and I also uh, messaged Katie about this on the side as we were watching, is like she navigates a set of, I believe, I could be wrong, but a set of fake teeth to look a bit more like what Verdon did and like navigates them beautifully. And I'm just going to like say that maybe uh, (laughs) this is the set of fake teeth that we should pay attention to uh, (laughs) this this, uh, award's year. And then the other thing that I want to say is like, Something that's interesting about uh, the Bob Fosse figure as this like tortured artist and to hero, but not but nuanced uh, that we've seen before um, 
is it's it's fun to see something like this, this kind of like frustrated masculinity in the world of musical theater and dance, because like, you know, that is like the interesting thing about Fosse is that he has this like machismo thing to him in that's in this world of musical theater that people like think is not is not reeking with machismo. You know what I mean? And that's that's just like a, a kind of fascinating dynamic. Yeah, I've been, uh, I was, someone was tweeting about just like Bob Fosse as a, someone who would be canceled by a current culture immediately. And uh, all that jazz exists out there as ample evidence of why uh, he would not work in modern society. So I'm curious if this does anything to reframe that legacy. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, one of the reasons that there is this huge glut of uh, good TV right now is that the Emmys eligibility deadline is June 1st. So much like with the Oscars about how all of the big movies will come out in the fall, so they're fresh in people's minds, uh, a lot of these big shows will come back at the same time and try to really uh, make their case for nominations. Um, looking at last year's nominees, like Marvelous is Maisel and Game of Thrones were the big winners last time. They are both back in the running. Um, just kind of looking at the Emmy race this year as an overall thing, are you guys feeling optimistic about what might get through, kind of resigned to the stuff that's just going to get awarded over and over again. Where do, where do things stand with this next awards race we're going to watch? Well, I feel like with both Veep and Game of Thrones ending, they're kind of going to eat up a lot of, of bandwidth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like a lot of times with the Emmys, like, you know, the triumph is getting the nomination um, mm-hmm. and getting recognized because there are so many things to be you know, like I like in the mix, like I don't think that, you know, beloved high maintenance will get in there. I don't think the other two will get in there, but like maybe we can hope for that. But yeah, it kind of feels like this is going to be one, like Sonia was saying, dominated by HBO and by those two shows in particular. Yeah, I think that like if there was a time for the Emmys to be like, maybe not all Game of Thrones, everything, it was last year when <laughs> it was last year when Game of Thrones had been gone for like a year and people barely remembered it and stuff like that. And the like if you look at the win, like the Game of Thrones producers themselves are sort of like, Oh oh really? <laughs> okay. Um, you know, or not Peter Dinklage. Crown? Yeah, Peter Dinklage similarly was like, Really? Okay, you know what I mean? Or like I think the first year they won was the like Mad men's last year and they were like really okay you know so like i think i think we just have to like say okay a, a game of thrones sweep um there are some like acting categories that i care about specifically when it comes to game of thrones i think we'll have to like wait and see what this final season give those particular actors um who you know are you reading like, for the hardest well, like, Lena Headey doesn't have an Emmy yeah. for Game of Thrones. Um, like, Peter Dinklage has all the Emmys for Game of Thrones, and, like, much love to Peter Dinklage, but, like, Lena Headey, Nicola Costa-Waldo, Alfie Allen, that's my, like, outsider, like, <laughs> hope. So, you know, um, that's, that's I think, where things could get interesting because it's always been a little tricky with Game of Thrones because it's an ensemble, uh, you know, of sorts, so it's hard to, like, pluck out a lead and the people who are the de facto leads now are maybe not their strongest performers. But, um, yeah, I I just... I. I think that that's going to be, uh, as you say, taking up a lot of the space or it's just like a foregone conclusion. And so then like, what are the other categories where we're like, okay, maybe there's a, there's an actual race here, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think you guys are totally right. Like drama and comedy, both of those categories are so overpopulated and also are both very likely to be swept by these two shows that are ending that have been beloved by the Emmy voters and by audiences. Um, Limited series has been, ha, might be more of a toss-up. We've got two shows where Patricia Arquette uh, is, like, doing really good performances that are both going to be eligible to run against each other, which is The Act um, on Hulu and Escape at Denimora on Showtime. 
And then there's also uh, sharp objects maybe in the mix there, although that hasn't done any uh, that hasn't done any awards at all. It felt for so long that limited series, for, for several years it seemed like a limited series was where all the action was happening. But it sort of seems like a lot of new shows have pushed back towards the traditional categories because, you know, Fleabag and Barry are both comedies and Killing Eve is, you know, classic drama. Um, so, I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to imagine uh, anything else breaking through the, the unified front um, of the Veep and Game of Thrones, but certainly a lot of shows are trying. But that's a nice thing to think about, like what Richard was saying, where the nomination is the reward. You know, if you're watching The Good Place and you've been like loving what Kristen Bell is doing, like, you know, she's probably not going to beat Julie Louis-Dreyfus, but you can root for her to get the nomination to get in there. Like, I Mm -hmm. felt that way about Glow and Betty Gilpin last year. Um, There is this kind of cheerleading you can do for your favorite shows because with the way that peak TV works, like you can feel like you're the only person who's paying attention to the work this person's doing. Right. Yeah. Remember when Tatiana Maslany won those nominations for Orphan Black? Partly for that yeah. reason. Yeah. Yeah. The the internet uh, campaign machine can work. Get your <laughs> get your tweets going. Okay. Um, hashtag Emmy for Alfie Allen. I'm starting it now. <laughs> Wait, is this your prediction that Theon's going to have a lot to do in this last season? Because uh, I feel no, like we haven't seen much not- of him. That's not a spoiler. That's just, I think, I rewatching the entire series, I think Alfie Allen has been the most overlooked uh, of a great performance uh, in Ooh. Game of Thrones. Wait, Richard, since you've been doing your rewatch too, I'm going to know who is the Game of Thrones person you want to see uh, justly rewarded finally. Um, the actor who plays Olivar, the male prostitute. Uh, no, mm-hmm. Very, um, he's rewarded in handsomeness. I, I have to agree with Joanna on Lena Headey. I mean, she's been so the center of the show um, for so long and, and is giving a very nuanced performance. So... Yeah, that would be exciting for her. Um, and I feel like that she would be the only woman who's won from that show, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's just Peter Dinklage who's won who, okay, like, so the, only in, Dinklage, in the yeah. acting categories. Yeah, right, She's right, been right. nominated, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think she gave like a really good, you know, like one of those all-time classic reaction shots to losing <laughs> last year. I think it was. <laughs> Just because she's great and has an amazing sense of humor. So the camera's on her. She's just sort of like, oh, dart or whatever it was. I don't know. Well, we're going to be talking about the Emmys a lot because, uh, as I mentioned, we're kind of in an acquired period for movies. Uh, Emmys is really heating up. So we'll have a couple of weeks to talk about some of the shows that are out, talk to some of the people, get into some awards handicapping. So uh, we can look forward to lots of obsessing about Emmys like that and maybe stumping for our personal Alfie Allens. But in the meantime, I think that does it for this week's episode. Um, Sonia, thank you for coming in and joining us again. Thanks for having me, guys. So you can find all of us at VanityFair.com, writing about things like the Emmys and Game of Thrones and Killing Eve and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, You can find us at Little Gold Men, where uh, we tweeted the news this morning that we've been nominated for a Webby, which is pretty exciting. We we are not above awards at all, as evidenced (laughs) by the existence of this podcast. So uh, (laughs) vote for us. Please uh, soothe our egos. Um, You can find us all on Twitter on our own, too. I'm at Katie Rich, Joanna. Jen wrote this. And Richard. Uh, Rylaws. And Sonia. Sonia Soraya. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best embodiment of a TV critic during the era of peak TV goes to Sonia Soraya. (sighs) 